In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. What up, what up, everybody? This is Double G for the Fight Game Podcast. You haven't heard from me in a week or so, and that is partially because our normal Monday show, which has been uh, the last six months of this year, the last five months, technically, the uh, WCW Saturday Night Recap shows that John LaRocca and I do. And so those of you who've been following that show... Uh, it, it wasn't there, as, as you know. Um, send me an email, gg at fightgamemedia.com. We have another project that we're doing, which takes that show off of this feed. But uh, for those who you know are interested in knowing what's going on, definitely send me an email, and I and we can I can give you some information about that. Um, but otherwise. This is going to be a very short intro. Uh, all I'm doing is introducing a book club chat that we did. And by we, I mean the Fight Game Podcast Facebook group. We invited Brian onto a Zoom call. We all have read his great book with uh, R.D. Reynolds' Death of WCW. It's been released in different uh you know different versions over the last several years and so we uh he agreed to come on you know all of us had bought it technically i I think he probably even got uh, a few more buys uh just you know in 2020 i think the book's probably like i don't know like 15 or 16 years old or something like that um but anyways uh he he came on and we just talked about the book. We asked him questions. Uh you know, there's some current aspects to the pro wrestling business today with AEW and uh the uh, the three main WWE shows and lessons that can be learned from Death of WCW. So that's what we we talked to him for about an hour. We took uh, a, a bunch of questions. I asked a few questions, so hopefully you get a kick out of it. Uh, Brian is an awesome guest, and he's an awesome person as well. I, I know him uh, a little bit from over the years, and you know I still I do stuff on uh, his website as well. So, uh, anyways, give it give it a give it a chance if you want to hear Brian Alvarez talk about death of WCW in our fight game podcast, Facebook group, uh, book club chat. And if if you want to join, we do, we're, we're doing one with Dave Meltzer, uh, in, in a few weeks with his new 1997, uh, year, year end observer book that just came out. So, uh, jump in, in the group, uh, look for the group. You can go to my Twitter page. It's the uh, pinned tweet. There's a link to it. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do even more stuff like this. So, uh, head over there and, uh, jump in the group and I'll approve you and check it out. So here we go. The fight game podcast, Facebook group, and myself interviewing and asking questions to Brian Alvarez, author 
of death of WCW as well as the uh, the guy behind F4WOnline.com slash WrestlingObserver.com. All right, we want to welcome Brian Alvarez to the Fight Game Podcast. This is our book club chat, our second book, which was Death of WCW. Brian agreed to come on and hang out with us and answer a few questions about the book. And, you know, if we run out of book questions, which I don't think we will, maybe we'll open it up to other topics. But uh, Brian, thanks for joining. How's it going? How's it going, everybody? I'm looking at all of these names here and Steve and Robin, Tim Page. You probably recognize I know, I a lot I of know them. everybody here. Exactly. Perfect. It's actually perfect. And it's just like friends. Makes me much more intimidated. <laughs> uh, also, the host of a Wrestling Observer Live. He's the guy behind F4W Online. And, you know, really, the uh, I imagine wrestling community has, has existed forever. But from an online perspective, you know, one of the first real communities which started online and then kind of uh, created the in-person uh, portion of that. So I think you deserve credit for that. But the first question that I want to ask you relates to the website. And then I'll then I'll ask you a question about the book. But um, you're pretty much, I think people consider you the pioneer when it comes to the current pro wrestling website where you really doubled down with audio. You were, I don't think you were the first one to do it, but you were the first one to really make it the uh, a, a gigantic part of the business plan. Um, do you step back or sit back and think of kind of, you know, what you created because every wrestling website, uh, that is, you know, that is worth something has a podcast and it is now a big part of their business. And you, you guys created that. I feel, I don't know if you could say that we created it, but I mean, I don't really sit back and think about it a lot, but I do. I mean, it all stems from IATA. I mean, that's how the whole thing started. I mean, I wanted to do I wanted to do radio since I started listening to Art Bell back in like 1994, 1995. And so I had the opportunity to do IATA. And then IATA went down and we got the deal with Sports Byline. And that was, I just loved doing it from the first day that I ever did it with Dave over the phone. And I had the newsletter. And so really the whole reason there's a website today is because the newsletter was dying. I mean, it was just falling off a cliff, mostly because postage prices were going up and printing and everything like that. So I talked to Tony, my brother-in-law, because he worked with computers. And I said, there's got to be a way to like, can we do a website, something? And I can just like put the newsletter up there and people can sign up and I don't have to mail them out anymore. We'll just cut out all of the expenses and he goes, yeah, just make a, I can make a website. We can make a password protected website, which we kind of had with the observer site several years earlier. And it was a total failure, <laughs> which is why it took three extra years to get Dave on board. But we started it. And then I think it was his idea, or maybe it was my idea. Someone's idea was, why don't we just record a couple of audio updates, like the old 900 lines. And if you're a subscriber, you get this 10 minute audio update. And I said, okay, whatever. And we got this cheap little voice recorder and we put a couple of shows up and all of a sudden all of the feedback was about audio. I mean, it was more audio than the newsletter. And at that point it was kind of like, well, dude, if you guys want me to just talk into this little thing right here and you'll subscribe, I'll be happy to do it. And so we did that. And once that started, I kind of figured, dude, if I'm going to do it, I better do it. And so I 
went full bore into trying to create an audio studio. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, the only thing I will say is everybody nowadays that's starting to do this, they got it so easy because all you do is you go on YouTube and you read, a, you, you watch a free tutorial and they'll tell you what mic to get. They'll tell you what mixer to get. They'll tell you every setting. They'll tell you how to do everything. And you can have a podcast in like a week. Whereas my podcast was horrible for like 10 years <laughs> before I really started to figure everything out. And then away we go. So, I mean, it was never meant to be like a, you know, I'm starting this wave on the internet of, of wrestling audio. All it was, was an extension of Yada and an extension of those old hotlines, those old hotlines that used to call and there would be a free one in your city, or there would be the 900 lines. And we had a 900 line for a while in the nineties. And I was on Dave's 900 line. That's really what all of this was. It was, it was never designed to be, you know, we're a, a pioneer of something on the internet and someday everybody's going to be doing what we're doing. It was just kind of like, I'm, in the poor house here. What do you guys want? And then I went back to what I was doing in the nineties and just a modern version of it. And then you talked Dave into coming over and Dave still hangs on to those last paper subscriber news, the newsletter subscribers that he will never give up. Yes. He's he's, and Hey, you know what? The difference is Dave had these paper subscribers years before I did. And you know, a lot of them are a little bit older and they love just getting that in the mail and reading an actual paper newsletter. And my audience wasn't into that. My audience was like, dude, we want the information. I mean, if you could download it into our heads, you know, whatever, just get it to us. And there's a group of people that they still want that paper newsletter. But I think Dave is finding out and he's going to find out that those numbers are just going to drop and drop and drop because either people get out of watching wrestling or they die. I mean, that's going to be really the end of the print newsletter is when all of the current subscribers, they die and you've got a whole, I mean, it sounds kind of gruesome, but I mean, it's true. Like you've got a whole generation now that they're not growing up reading a, a paper newsletter. They're, they're getting everything off the internet. So it's just the way it is. And then he doesn't have to use the, uh, the template that he uses currently to write that thing, which often will break. And then I get a call and you get a call about how he can fix it so that he can write it or else he's got to send his computer into the shop and, and that whole thing. Well, the thing with Dave is, I mean, I know a fair amount about technology, but I know about 2020 technology. <laughs> so when he says, I got a problem with my word, perfect template, his macro, I can't help you. I need a time machine. All right. So my first question about the book, and then we'll, we'll start uh, sending it to other folks. So I, I thought of how could I ask a question that I thought you would ask if you were talking to somebody who had written this book. And I, my, the question I thought was, if Tony Khan said, called you up on your cell phone, he's like, hey, Brian, you wrote the book on WCW and all the mistakes that they made. What are one or two pieces of advice that you could give him of what he should not do again. I'm not talking about like the small things, but really like the big things that were the cause of WCW, at least in your uh, in your mind. But what advice could you give AEW if they were like, I just want to make sure I don't do these bad things, these one or two bad things. What would those two things be for you? Well... I mean, the first thing is apparently Tony Khan has read Death of WCW, so we would never have this conversation. And from watching the show, I mean, at this point, he's already avoided a lot of the mistakes. And the, the, the big one, the biggest mistake of all 
is that there needs to be new stars being created and they need to be young, fresh stars. And you're a Hulk Hogan when he comes in in 1994, everything's on fire. And then, you know, things are good. 96 NWO blows up and everything like that. That's all great. Okay. You know, the, when WWF was looking at this war, you know, Vin, Vince had let, he let Hogan go. Hogan didn't get raided. He was done with Hogan and Hogan went to Japan. And then later he got signed and, you know, Savage, he'd already made a commentator. And the reality was all of these stars, even though they were old, I mean, when you brought them into world championship wrestling, when they first came in, you had a generation of fans who, you know, they were, they were my age in the eighties. They were 10, 11, 12 years old. And now it's the mid nineties and they're late teens, early twenties. And it's all of these stars that they grew up with. And so really the beginning of the Monday Night Wars and the beginning of Nitro, it was it was actually all about uh, these big stars from their childhood coming back and they were they were watching them again. OK, so it was like, uh, what's the term? Someone help me here. Everyone turn your mics on. But anyway, <laughs> so they're, they're just reliving oh, their childhood. OK, so that's fine at the beginning. But then nostalgia thank you jd it's nostalgia okay <laughs> so really that was the beginning of the monday night wars there was a sense of nostalgia you you had all of the fans and they remembered the hogans and the savages and all these guys that the wcw all of a sudden put back on top again and you also had a bunch of of dean malenko's and eddie guerrero's and ray mysterio's doing something that nobody had ever seen so you had a great mix of everything that's what skyrocketed the whole thing but that's only going to last you for a little while if, if you want this to continue, Hogan can't be on top forever. And Randy Savage can't be on top forever. And you've got to use them to create new stars. And for a while there, they were creating new stars. But then it got to the point where they weren't creating stars. And a Jericho would just be nothing but a mid-carter. A Benoit, nothing but a mid-carter. Eddie Guerrero was kind of like a little higher than a mid-carter, but not really mid-carter. And of course, you know, four years in, everybody wants to get the hell out of there because they're just doing the same thing and the same guys are on top. And that's the number one thing. You've got to create new stars. So right now, the Young Bucks, I mean, if you look at AEW numbers, they're on fire. And, you know, Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho and all of these guys, they do great numbers. And they're going to do great numbers for a while. But the day is going to come where we've been there. We've seen that. It's time for a Jungle Boy or whatever. And you can see from watching the television that some guys are slowly getting elevated like jungle boy. It's not his time yet, but they're slowly doing it with him. And, and we had the big Darby Allen win over Cody. They're slowly bringing him up. So they're doing everything right right now. And they need to continue in that direction. And then obviously the other thing, the simple way to say it is don't hire a Vince Russo. You've got to just have storylines that do not insult a person's intelligence. I mean, as we've seen with, with, WWE of late, I mean, WWE has got, if you look at everybody they have in NXT, everybody they have in Raw, everybody they have on SmackDown, they have the greatest roster of wrestlers that there's ever been in one place. And look at their numbers. How many of you that are watching me right now don't watch Raw? I mean, are we all going to raise our hand? Except, unfortunately, me. I mean, to, to have that much talent and no one's watching your show, that's the booking. 
That's insulting the intelligence of the fans. That's no long-term storytelling. When I was a kid, and all of you were kids, like, what did we hear about wrestling? It's a male soap opera. Well, a male soap opera is about storytelling. And it's about, oh, well, this guy did this and that, and here's the story. Granny's been on the show, and she recaps an episode of All My Children or whatever. And it's like this intricate storyline, and she knows everything that went on over the last year and the last five years, and this guy's been around for 30 years and all this. I mean, try and you know, tell a storyline at a WWE. It's like you could tell maybe the last three weeks, but then when you try and fit a storyline together over a long period of time, it doesn't work. So you have to have somebody that can book well, and you've got to constantly create new stars. Those are the two things. All right. Just so people who just came in, uh, if you have a question, put it in the chat. We'll, we're going to order the questions and, and call on you. Everyone stay muted for now. But Chris and Zach are going to be up next. So you guys can unmute. Now, Zach is... Uh, he, it is soon to be bedtime for him, so we wanted to get him on uh, as soon as possible. We'll go for it, Chris. Hey, what's going on, Brian? How's it going? Want to say hi? I've watched my language this entire show because I saw this little fella right here. <laughs> it's okay. He's hard worse. Um, just looking back on some of the absurd stuff that we saw in WCW and some of the stuff that you put in the book, do you think with the way... Like things like BTE and AEW that they've relied on, like that meta humor or some of that just you know downright outlandish stuff that we've seen over the last couple of years, like the whole uh, stuff with Hangman's boots and Joey Ryan and stuff like that. Do you think any of those silly gimmicks from towards the end, like maybe Three Count or Psycho David Flair, do you think they translate better or play better nowadays? Do you think they might work in front of this audience? That's actually a very good question. I think that if you've gone to a lot of independent wrestling events over the last five years, I think the wacky stuff is going to translate a lot better nowadays than it did back then. Now, to me, what is important is, listen, I love wacky stuff. I mean, if you've been reading the newsletter since 95, I love wacky. But there's a time and a place for wacky. And to me, if something is wacky, but it kind of fits into a storyline and I can make sense of it in my head. I have a lot easier time with that than when I was watching some of those old WCW shows. And like every week there was something wacky. It was just, they did something wacky because it was wacky. It came out of nowhere and it went nowhere or it was dropped or it, it didn't make any sense. So I think that and pro wrestling has been wacky forever. I mean, it didn't start in the Monday night wars. I mean, you can go back. I mean, the first mask wrestler, I'm sure, was pretty wacky, but, you know, they put a mask on a guy, whatever. But, I mean, the whole deal is, as long as it makes sense and there's a logic to it, I think people are going to accept it. But I do believe that, in general, now, you can get away with a lot more of, of Orange Cassidy-type stuff than you would have got away with in the, in the 90s. All right, let's take a break to talk about Indeed.com. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be the most efficient, which means every hire is critical and Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause at any time and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job 
criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. So right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer anywhere. Go right now. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we're going to go to... uh, Josiah and then Tim in a second. But before that, I I was reading through the book again, and I've probably read this thing three times. And the thing that continually hit me over the head was, obviously, Goldberg was very new to the business, but he wasn't new to the business of sports. He'd been in locker rooms his whole career. And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm thinking, like, who, who is in that locker room for him to talk to, to give him some advice so he knows to not just get stampeded by guys like Nash and and Hogan and Hall. Like, did he have anybody he was close to that he could trust to give him advice? I mean, based on the outcome, probably not. But I just, that's the thing that stuck out, stuck out to me was, you know, Goldberg, why did you allow yourself to just get destroyed by these guys? Well, the funny thing is, I mean, if you look at, at the career of Goldberg, I mean, he let himself get destroyed in WWE, it wasn't even really in world championship wrestling. I mean, one of the one of the most amazing things about the Goldberg story is that somehow, and you know, they did make a couple of mistakes with Goldberg, like the 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 zapper, the uh, cattle prod, beating him for the title. I mean, they made some mistakes with the guy, but it was incredible how long it took for them to do that. Because when he started coming up, he started coming up when things were starting to go down in certain ways. And you had a lot of people that were very jealous, a lot of people that wanted to retain their spots, a lot of people making money. They didn't want to give these spots up to any other guys. And here's this guy and he's getting over. And everybody, I shouldn't say everybody. I mean, the usual suspects, they wanted to take this guy down a peg and Bischoff never allowed it. And Goldberg just stayed on that streak and he kept smashing guys and he went all the way until the day that Nash finally got him and zapped him. And that was the end of that. But I mean, it was really amazing how long he was able to survive in that environment. And, you know, he was, a uh, he's Goldberg. If you've ever listened to a Goldberg interview, I mean, the guy's going to stand up for himself about certain things. And the thing with the Goldberg character was it was so simple that it didn't take a genius to figure out what was and wasn't going to work for his character. So even though he was new and, and he was new in the business and just got into pro wrestling, whatever the character was so simple that he can figure out if something is suggested to him, that's stupid. And, you know, once he went to WWE, it was like, it was all downhill. I mean, they put the wig on him. They want him to do long matches. They want him to go 50, 50. I mean, they did a far worse job there than they did in world championship wrestling, which is really shocking when you think about it. All right, Josiah. And then we're going to go to Tim and James. You guys are on deck, but Josiah, go ahead and ask your question. Hey, Brian. So, uh, as a Canadian, uh, growing up, I was a, Bret Hart was one of my heroes. And when he was jumping to WCW uh, around 97, when I was around 12 years old, uh, 
I would say that I was very excited about that because WCW is the promotion I really loved uh, at that time. And however, they colossally screwed it up. Uh, so what do you think WCW should have done with Bret Hart at Star K97 instead of what they actually did? Well, I mean, the thing with Bret is everything that I was talking about with Goldberg, it all happened to Bret. Like when he showed up, I mean, there was so much potential for WCW getting Bret Hart, who just got screwed out of the WWF title. Vince is the biggest heel in the world. They screwed this guy on the way out. He's coming into world championship wrestling. This should have been gigantic. But what happened? He shows up. Everybody's already in Bischoff's ear. Well, this, that, this guy, small, whatever the deal is. And you could see it like he does nothing. And then they have this idea for Starcade, which the Starcade, the famous Starcade match is like, it's a complete disaster. But I mean, even if it would have went well, it's like, that's the idea you had for Bret Hart. You're going to try to screw Sting. And this guy that got screwed at Survivor Series is going to come out and he's going to reverse the decision. That's what you came up with for Bret Hart. And then they go for the Bret Hart-Rick Flair feud. And the feud's doing great. And everybody's in Bischoff's ear and they draw the buy rate and boom, they're gone. So, I mean, I could ask every single one of you here, very much like when WCW went out of business and we asked everybody for invasion ideas on IATA and everybody had a better idea than they did. I could ask every person here. It's 1997. You just got Bret Hart at the end of the year. He just got screwed. What do you do with this guy? Every one of you is going to have a better idea because you could have done almost anything and it would have worked with Bret Hart. But they chose to do something, a ripoff of Survivor Series, a bad idea, pushing him down from day one, taking him off TV when he starts to get over. It was a disaster. But he should have been like, they should have done huge business in Canada. He should have been the Canadian hero. Start doing tours up there. Make, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to make him the, they spent a year building up Sting. So you don't have to put the world title on him. But he could have taken the US title or whatever title, go up there defend it on these shows, do big business in Canada, eventually build up to beating some of the guys in, in world championship wrestling, end up with the world. There's a million things you could have done with Brett. He was the hottest wrestler in the entire world after survivor series and they got him and they did nothing with him. All right, Tim, I know you have a few questions and I think we'll be able to get to all of them, but ask your first question uh, and go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Brian, for joining us. Uh, Brett also would have been huge in Europe for WCW. That's where he made anywhere. His I mean, when he my, did those interviews, he talked about places that he was over, and it was like I was super over in Africa. It's all these random places where you could have taken this guy anywhere. He was a he was a classic babyface. He was a great technical wrestler. Like you don't have to speak the language. You don't have to. All you have to do is see Bret Hart wrestling and being a hero, and he's going to get over anywhere. So we all thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Uh, we've taken the book club out of Oprah's hands and brought it into ours. <laughs> yes. so I asked a bunch of questions, but my first one, because this has always been kind of digging at me, like Ted Turner has been widely regarded as such an amazing executive, yet he hired a bunch of less than uh, capable people to run his baby WCW. Uh, Jim Hurd, Bill Watts. I exempt Kip Allen Fry from this because I think that 
time in WCW is what I uh, enjoyed the most. But isn't some of the failing of WCW Ted Turner's for just putting in these these people and sticking with them too long before the merger happened? Well, one thing you have to remember is that Ted Turner was a big fan of pro wrestling. And one of the reasons that WCW stayed alive for so long was because he was just going to keep it alive forever. Because when he started the Superstation, it was the first show that did a million viewers and it got the whole thing rolling. But he was watching during a period where I'm not saying that booking wrestling is easy because as we've seen over the last God only knows how long, it's not that easy. Although some people have figured it out. But it's not as hard as WWE has made it with the system that they have right now. So Ted Turner was watching a style of wrestling that was pretty simple booking. Everything was logical. It all made sense. And not being like a real hardcore fan, knowing all of the ins and outs of the business. I mean, he honestly probably thought it can't be that hard. So, you know, we hired this person and we let them get in there and run the show. And, you know, it's, it's not like WCW wasn't on fire, but it wasn't like doing terrible during that period. I mean, it wasn't, you look at the, the early nineties period and it's, it's certainly not the best period of world championship wrestling and they had money losing years and everything like that, but it wasn't like a complete pit and it wasn't like it was, it was, you know, impact during the their worst period or WWE the last couple of years. I mean, stuff still made sense and you had champions and everything like that. And, you know, I, it wasn't a situation where it was losing so much money that he was desperate to find somebody else to do. It was like, okay, well, we'll try this guy and it didn't work. We'll try this guy. I don't think he understood how difficult it was. And, you know, it is difficult. It's not difficult. I, I, I probably sound like I'm, I'm uh, saying, like contradicting myself, but I'm not. I mean, basic professional wrestling booking isn't hard, but it also is hard because people try to overcomplicate it, if that makes sense. So I think that was just the thing. He didn't understand the wrestling business and there were these people and they had resumes and, and they got in there and the show kept going and, you know, the guys he liked were there until they weren't and then he fired the guys that fired him and such is life. All right, James, you are on deck. I think the other thing is that there were sharks who were undermining people who were in charge as well. And that is not anything that, you know, Ted can probably necessarily account for. He's not that close to it. But James, uh, get ready. You can unmute and ask your question. Right. Hi, Brian. First, nice to actually talk to you for once. Hey, um, how you doing? All good. All good. Very late here. It's like one one thirty in the morning. Well, worth it. Um, my question is sim simply: Now that you've actually, well, now that you actually rewatched all the Nitro era WCW, what would you rewrite in the rewrite in the book if you could read? You know, if you could rewrite it now. Well, the one thing, I mean, there's a few things that that I mean, I rewrote the book once for the anniversary edition, and for all I know, they'll want to do like a, a twenty year, twenty five year, hopefully because I, there are things that I would change. I mean, for one thing, if you read the book and I talk about how terrible those nitros were in like 99, 2000, 2001, I rewatched those and they were much worse than I thought they were when I wrote the book the first time. They're so much worse. And granted, you know, when I, when I wrote the book the first time, 
It was uh, me and RD. It was 2004, I think, was when we wrote it. It came out in 2005. And so the company had just died a few years earlier. So we were, we had watched it all. You know, I went through every television report I ever wrote in Figure Four Weekly, used all of those notes. And we were looking at it through the eyes of 2005. And fast forward, I rewatched all those shows in like 2018, 2019, 2020. So that's another two decades or 15 years or whatever of, of insight. And man, what I thought was bad back then, it was so much worse. There were some shows that I don't even think got a sentence in Death of WCW. That when I watched, it was like, how is this not a legendary show? This is one of the worst shows I ever saw ever in my life. Nobody talks about it because a lot of the shows that people remember as being horrible, they're horrible because something happened like the finger poke of doom, monumentally stupid. And it was like an important detail, but they had some shows where just nothing happened and they're so bad. It's like, how did anybody watch this show the next week? There was nothing mind blowing or earth shattering, but it was an awful show. So I would change. I mean, I would probably be more harsh on those final nitros the second time. The other thing is certain things like Goldberg, Goldberg, I mean, I don't know about, I don't know who has a Hall of Fame ballot here and who does not. But after Goldberg's second WWE run, the one where he had the awesome match at WrestleMania with, with, uh, with Brock, after watching his second run, which was done so well, and then going back and watching his world championship wrestling run, it's like this dude is a Hall of Famer. This guy is, he's fantastic. Everybody remembers Goldberg is like, well, you know, he was green. It wasn't very good, but, you know, he had cool moves. Everybody loved him and they liked the jackhammer and everything like that. But man, you go back and watch Goldberg and he is so great. There's nobody like him. I watched those nitros in, in 99 and these crowds are dead. They're just watching these shows and they're just sitting there or they're booing and throwing stuff. The show sucks. And all of a sudden Goldberg's music hits and it's like 1997 all over again. They're on their feet. They're screaming. They're going crazy. Comes out. He kills this guy. Jack hammers him. They're screaming up and down. They go to commercial. They come back. Everyone's dead. He totally would bring life to the worst nitro shows. And he was such a animal. He's such a wild animal like that was the thing about Goldberg. Like at the time, at the time, I remember people thinking, you know, if only Goldberg could work, if only he was a better worker, I go back and watch those shows. And I think if this guy was a better worker, he wouldn't have been Goldberg. He would have been, I don't know what he would have been. He probably still would have still got over because he was such a personality, but the fact that he was so green and raw and it was like a real fight and he'd get in there and you smash these guys and these dudes would just go flying and get speared upside down in the middle of this show that just sucked. I mean, dude, he was the only, he was literally like the only good thing about months of Nitro. So between that and what a huge star he was, even when this thing was at the bottom of the barrel and then his comeback in, in WWE, I mean, I would give that guy so much more praise if I wrote that book again, because he was something really special. All right, Parker, you are on deck. I can tell you Goldberg is 
on the fence for me. But the the reason why I don't vote for him kind of is back to the question I asked you is because I felt like the reason why he became so disenfranchised with pro wrestling, uh, at least partially, is because I think he was a he was manipulated and in WWF the first time he was, you know, he was completely manipulated. And so I think if he sort of has a better understanding of how to take his career and, and really, you know, some of the, some of the people like Bret Hart, like even he got manipulated, but at least, you know, he really owned his career. I think if Goldberg does that, he has a little bit longer uh, of a time period as a wrestler. And I think we remember that a little bit more fondly, but that's that's the reason why I don't vote him is because I I think he kind he didn't sabotage himself but he, he if he understood what was going on a little bit better I think he would have not fallen out of you know such love of the, of the business and just gone away for so long. But Parker, go for it. Uh, unmute and go ahead and ask your question. Hi, right. uh, hi Brian. Nice to meet you. Um, uh... I might be one of the few people that's new here. I recently started actually doing the dynamite reports for F4W online. So uh, nice to meet you. Um, My question is, um, I find Eric Bischoff super compelling as like a booker slash character at this time, um, especially like NWO days, Um, mostly because he had this like incredible patience for building and building and building things. And I think like Hogan and Sting, as well as, you know, the beginnings of Goldberg are examples of that. Um, But these builds never really seemed to result in any sort of like satisfying conclusion or culmination that would end up, you know, making money and leave viewers, you know, excited about the future. So I wonder, like, if you have any specific explanation or ideas as to how he was able to establish such an awesome, like, concept for a feud and build it and build it and build it and then just leave, you know, viewers completely unsatisfied with the conclusion. Well, one of the things you got to think about, too, is is one of the best storylines was the simple one of, of Sting gets screwed and then he disappears. They shows up in the rafters dressed as the crow and you build it up and you build it up and you build it up. And the whole idea is you're going to pay it off. It's Starcade, And the payoff is simple. Sting goes in there and he runs wild. He destroys Hulk Hogan and he wins a title and you push him as the champion. That's it. And what happened there, I mean, the whole thing with Nick Patrick and Hulk Hogan and the Count and that whole disaster, you know, Eric Bischoff did not tell Nick Patrick to do a normal count. And Eric Bischoff, I mean, none of this was his plan from where everything began. So it's, it's exactly what we've been talking about is people manipulating, people getting in people's ears, people screwing whatever up. I mean, the thing with Eric Bischoff is the one thing that I, that I, and I probably would actually put this if I rewrote the book again, because I, I really noticed it when I rewatched all of the nitros. So nitro starts in 95 and Eric Bischoff has a pretty simple idea here, which is this WWF show. It's boring, bunch of stupid squash matches we're going to change that. We're going to put these big main events on television and starts putting big main events on television. And then he has the opportunity to, to get Hall and Nash. And he came up with a great idea, which was, and I mean, it's not like a, it doesn't take a genius. I mean, it was like, they came from the other company. And the reality is I don't want to downplay what Eric Bischoff did with the NWO, but the reality was 
that's like a simple, obvious storyline. If you get two guys who are fairly big stars, one was a former WWF champion, one was a former Intercontinental champion, they come in, do an invasion angle. And the reason that for a lot of fans that was like mind blowing to them is because a lot of fans grew up watching WWF where they never even acknowledged there was another company. The only time they ever did it was like when Ric Flair was coming in and he had the belt and they pixelated the belt. And the whole story was he was a fake. He was pretending to be the champion. So when Bischoff got these guys and came up with the idea for this invasion, great idea. And of course, they went back and forth. Who's going to be the third man? And Hogan had to be talked into it. Who even knows what would have happened if it hadn't been Hogan? But Hogan gets talked into it. And boom, that was enough to light this company on fire for a year or so. Okay. So the one thing that I noticed about Bischoff was when Bischoff joined the NWO, you can go back and find out whatever month and year it was. It immediately, I'm talking like immediately, I saw a massive difference in the shows. And, you know, people have talked forever about, you know, Dusty's a booker and he makes himself the champion. The, the, whoever's doing the booking should be the champion, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, he didn't make himself the champion, but he made himself like the manager of the top heel group. And so he's in all these interview segments. He's doing all of these, these whatever with Hogan and all the guys. And... You can watch the shows and there's more you can determine from this period, but him being a character on television and mixing up with all the top stars and figuring out their segments backstage and everything like that. I mean, you could immediately see that the booking of the shows started to trickle down. And then from there, it's like he had a few ideas, which were very good ideas. Don't get me wrong. The ideas he had at the beginning were some very good ideas, but that was all he had. And eventually you got to keep going. And it was the same idea. He had like the same idea over and over. We're going to expand the NWO. Well, now we're going to have the NWO B team. Well, now we're going to have the LWO. Well, now we're going to have this and that. And it's like the same ideas, the same ideas. Hogan's on top. Same guys on top. Same feuds. Going back to beefcake or whatever. It's like he had this idea that started the ball rolling, but he had nothing to keep the ball rolling. So, you know, I don't think, I mean, I don't know if, Eric's been on that observer hall of fame ballot for years, but I mean, he got no support and I think he fell off the ballot. And I mean, that's, that's the longevity thing. I mean, he, he started this war. He started the Monday night wars. He was the first promoter ever to beat Vince in his own game, but it was for a very short period of time. And there was zero staying power. And, you know, every time from that point forward, I mean, if you put the guy on TV in a, in a television role, if he's a GM, if he's doing some game show thing on AEW in 2020, the guy's great at that. But he was not a great booker. He let it go down the tubes. He did nothing about it. In fact, he kept the snowball rolling. And that's all I can say about Eric. Football is back in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins 
division and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all in one word. Bet Online, your online sports book experts. All right, David, we have David, Larry, and Jeremy that we're going to get to next. But, David, you can go ahead and unmute and ask your question. Hey, Brian. What's up? That's um, another guy here from the UK. Um, 22 in the morning, but worth staying up to speak to you. Um, Thank you. Just want to ask you about Jim Hurd. Uh, were you surprised at how honest Jim Hurd was about Ric Flair and the Ric Flair situation? Because obviously he admitted that he made a mistake and that Ric Flair was, I think he said, the greatest champion of all time. Were you just surprised at how you know, he's changed his tune after all these years? Well, you got to think about a guy like Jim Hurd. He was, he was in the business and he was out of the business. What does he have to lose by saying that he made a big mistake? You know, he's not looking to be hired by AEW. He's not looking to be hired by WWE. He's not looking for any sort of a professional wrestling fame. You know, honest guy. He went in there. He thought he had an idea, made a mistake, and, and that was it. I mean, a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys to this day, they're still defending their stupid decisions. I mean, for the most part, I mean, they've been in wrestling all of their lives. Wrestling was their livelihood. Wrestling is their legacy. They don't want their legacy to be, man, I, I messed this whole thing up and I screwed it up. You know, that's why you hear the AOL time Warner, uh, the merger. Uh, it was this, Oh, it was that, or blah, 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 blah. These are people that, I mean, at, at the time when we wrote the book, I mean, it, these people were trying to get back into the business. It was only a few years after WCW died, but you take somebody that was in and out and they made a mistake. They moved on with their lives. Their, their WCW tenure does not define them. And that's it. I think that's, that's the answer. All right, Larry, you are on deck. I, I just wanted to ask one other thing uh, as it relates to a, a lesson that I learned reading it, you know, this, this last time, which was uh, if you wanted to use analytics, if WCW, it seemed like they did, they wanted to, they used analytics to make it seem like they were still okay and that things were not the problem. You and RD were writing over and over that houses are great, ratings are going down, but then they just broke their record for the gate. Uh, Pay per view buys were up. So you could look at the analytics and say, we're fine. But then if you look at the the popularity and you look at the TV ratings, it actually told a different story. And so as it relates to today, specifically for AEW, because WWE, at least for now, has made this entire thing foolproof, which is amazing. AEW, as a TV product, they also sell pay-per-views. They are starting to get into merchandise. What, what would be the one or two things that you would look at specifically? I'm guessing ratings is one, but are there any other things that you feel today, especially during the pandemic, that are really important Where versus you know 20 years ago where WCW was able to see certain things and lie to themselves about how they were doing? Well, I think one of the things, the most important thing for AEW, and it makes a lot of people mad because it's not the way it used to be, but it's that 18 to 49 demo. That's the most important thing. And, you know, whenever I talk about the demos or Dave talks about the demos and, and people get really upset about it, I just point to the chart. I mean, the ratings chart is ranked by 18 to 49 because that's what's most important. Now, it is true 
that during the Monday Night Wars, nobody talked about 18 to 49. I, I don't remember the exact year, but if I recall correctly, it was right around 2001 that 18 to 49 became what is now the prime demo. So during the 90s, it was all about the rating, the number of viewers. That's how you sold your ads. And then starting in the early 2000s, it started to change to these advertisers were thinking, well, listen, you know, I mean, it depends on the show too, but 18 to 49 is going to be the most important demo. So from that point forward, that's what's been important is that demo. And the demo is not just important for all the people that love to go on my Twitter on Thursday and freak out about the numbers and everything like that. Ah, The demos are important because AW started a year ago and they had a TV deal and they did very good in 18 to 49 and years early, they got signed to a new, more lucrative deal all because of 18 to 49. They didn't get signed to that new deal because on week one, they had 1.4 million viewers. And then by week 10, they had 900,000 viewers. Like if, if that were the case, they wouldn't have gotten a new deal. Their, their actual viewership went down, but TNT looked at the demo and it was like, Jiminy Christmas, like let's sign these, let's extend this deal. And they extended the deal. They paid them more money. That's it. So back then, yeah, there were a lot of different things to look at. You look at how are the houses? How are the pay-per-views? How many tickets are you selling? What are the ratings? Blah, 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 blah. Because back then you had all sorts of different revenue generators. That's why as much as I have buried Vince Russo, okay, and I will continue to bury him from here on out. But when they signed Vince Russo, in his contract, he was bonused based on how they were doing in the ratings. Back then, there were many revenue generators. TV money was nothing compared to what it is today. Back then, you made all your money on pay-per-view. And whatever you made selling tickets. So to give a guy a contract that did not bonus him for pay-per-view buys or house show attendance, ticket selling, but only bonused him for something that at the time was largely used for bragging rights in a, in a, in a war, that's not his fault. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, granted, I mean, he still did a terrible job, but the reality is all he cared about was I got to get these ratings up. He didn't care about if he got the pay-per-view numbers up. He didn't care if he sold tickets. There was nothing in his contract that said anything about any of that. So he writes his television shows and ratings barely move. But the fact of the matter is pay-per-view cratered, house shows and, and attendance cratered. And so it put this company in a tailspin. Nowadays, Dude, we're in a pandemic. WWE hasn't run a live show since like March. And they're doing monster business because of their television deals. WWE, like whatever they're selling. And I mean, they're selling a lot of belts right now, but they could sell no merchandise. They'd be doing huge profits. So for a company like AEW, I mean, what? You sell a thousand tickets to, to Daly's Place or you sell two tickets to Daly's Place. It doesn't make any difference. It's about their television money they're making from TNT. So in 2020, it's really that 18 to 49 demo. That's the most important thing for WWE, for AEW, 
anybody that's tracking the ratings, that's the most important thing. Back then, totally different. All right, Larry, you can go ahead and unmute and ask your question. Hey, Brian. So um, they say that uh, history is written by the winners. So I was wondering, what does WWE get wrong with their story about WCW? I will be perfectly honest. I did not watch any of their documentary on the Monday Night Wars because that thing came out and my inbox just went email, email, email. Oh my God, they did this. They said that. I mean, history is written by the winners and to the winners, you know, Ted Turner signed away all their top talent and cheated. And I mean, honest to God, I I couldn't even tell you their side of history because I try so hard not to pay attention to it because it's not what happened. I was there. I watched it. You all watched it. I mean, you watch any of these documentaries they do and it's, it's just, it's, I can't do it. So I wish I had a better answer for you, but you know, you can watch the TV and the stories they tell about, you know, anything. It's like their side of history is, is rarely what actually happened. All right, Jeremy, you are up next. The the one thing I would say about those documentaries, um, the series specifically, I think the thing that they kind of, a lot of what they were talking about, they were not honest, but the sto- the narrative that Vince wants to tell is that he was actually the underdog in the whole thing because, um, you know, Ted Turner's pocketbook versus his pocketbook. But rather than give the real reason of him cutting all those guys so that WCW could sign them, it was really that Ted stole them. And if you look back, you know, they, they, they were... They were definitely in competition for certain people, but a lot of that was just Vince thinking, like Brian said earlier, that these guys were too old and just kind of letting them go, not thinking that WCW could ever use them correctly. The other one is um, in a, in 97, Vince really thought he was going to get Hogan back, actually. So, you know, when he's talking to guys, uh, you know, he's talking to Brett, like he's telling Brett, like, we may get Hogan back. So it's not like Vince was not able to also go get those guys and bring them back, even as far back as 97. They, they were thinking of doing it, but you know for whatever reason, he couldn't. And he continually tells the story that they were the underdog and uh, you know, WCW was kind of you know, doing, uh, un, you know, uh, what, what do you call it, uh, bad business or unfair business or whatever. All right, Jeremy. Actually, you know what? Let me say one other thing really, really quick. So one of the things I noticed when I, when I watched all of the shows back is as a fan, when you're watching a war and you know, it's a war and somebody from the other promotion jumps ship to your promotion. I mean, that was great for like that big TV moment. Oh, the countdown clock is counting down. Oh my God. It's Chris Jericho. And I remember the one that everybody used to talk about at the time was when X-Pac jumped back. And there was kind of this feeling that so many wrestlers were going from WWF to WCW that fans were seeing WWF as like this loser brand. And WCW was like the winner brand because they were getting everybody. Everybody was going one way. And then like X-Pac, because he went back, it was like this big thing. Okay. Now, if you're an inside fan, and you knew all of the ins and outs, 
And I, and obviously we, we, most of us probably were at the time. I mean, that probably was really exciting, but when you go back and you just watch those shows as a fan, like the moments of big debuts are cool. Like Chris Jericho's debut was awesome when he went back and forth with the rock. But a lot of the times it's like, dude, Xbox on the show. Now it's just like, he comes out of nowhere and there he is. And the thing I noticed was what made me more or less interested in either show watching it back because we watched both shows every Tuesday. I would watch the nitro from 19 years ago this week. I'd watch the raw from 19 years ago this week. And we're just watching them as a fan. We're covering them on the Brian and Vinny show. And what I noticed was what made me excited about what show was going to be on next week or which one I wanted to watch first. It almost never had to do with the new talent that showed up. It always had to do with are the storylines now any good. So like in 1997, like WWF storylines in 97 were so good. I mean, honestly, that's probably the best year of WWF. I would say that I ever watched and I'm watching 2001. Now we just got through 2000. Those are super famous, popular years, but man, my favorite year of WWF was 1997 and the storylines were just so good. And when I, when I think about it now, what really got me interested and not interested in either show was really just like the storytelling, the, the moments, the big Mick Foley title win, one guy jumping ship. I mean, that stuff is all great and it's really exciting to watch, but it was never the thing that really kept me going as a fan. And it would be really interesting to like go back and, and ask fans from that era. I mean, did they feel that way as well? I mean, was it really because people kept going to WCW that it was hot or was it really the WCW storytelling was just way better at that time. So I don't know the answer, but I know watching it back. I, I certainly felt like the storytelling was way more important than those big famous moments that everybody talks about. We're actually going to do Dave's uh, 97 Observer book as our next book club. So we're all going to get right back into that 1997. All right, Jeremy. And I think after we'll have at least time for Tim to go again. We'll see about Parker, but go ahead, Jeremy. Hey, Brian. Long time caller, first time listener. I'm sure you have those. How are you doing? (laughs) Good. How are you? Um, Question I had was, 20 years ago, I would have said something different, but in hindsight now, would you say it was the unintended backstage violence and fights like uh, Arn and Sid and uh, Paige and Steiner or even Goldberg putting his hand through the, the, the window or the bad booking decisions that happened in the ring that did more damage to the WCW brand in hindsight? Dude, it was, it was way more the in-ring storytelling. I mean, when you talk about backstage fights, you got to remember that the period I was just talking about, my favorite period in WWF history, dude, there were backstage fights happening in WWF. Sean and Brett are beating on each other in the back. They're having fights back there. And one of the things you don't hear about backstage fights nowadays because they're very, very rare. And part of the reason for that is that generation, Monday Night War generation, Number one, I mean, it was just a different breed of cat. I mean, everybody, this was your, this was your business. It was your money. And someone's trying to screw you. That ain't going to happen. Oh, you want, you want Brett to go, eh, not going to do it. And these people were stars to the degree in a war 
Hey, you want to get a fight? Who cares? What are you going to fire me? I'll go to the other place. And you think that if, if like, you know, Scott Steiner, when he beat up DDP, if, if WCW had fired Scott Steiner, WWE probably wouldn't have immediately hired him or vice versa. I mean, they're not going to hire you because you got in a fight in the other locker room. I mean, if you were a big star, they were going to hire you. I mean, you know, Sean and, and Brett and all those guys, I mean, they'd get in fights and, you know, they're just begging them, come on, please, blah, blah, blah. So it was just a totally different world. I mean, nowadays, you know, I, I don't want to bury the wrestlers nowadays, but it's just totally different. It's they're lucky to be there. They're happy to be there. I mean, you see some of these people I ate to, I'm sure he's a great guy, but drew Gulak. It's like, dude, you were, you were done. I mean, you could have gone anywhere, buddy. You could have gone to new Japan. You could have gone to ring of honor and you were dying to get back there. And he gets back there and they do nothing with the guy. It's crazy to me. But I mean, back then it was these people, they wanted to protect their position. They were making their money. They were, they were paid based on where they were on the card. They didn't like it. They were going to argue with Vince. They were going to argue with Bischoff. They get in a fight with some other guy. You can fire me. Who cares? I'll go to the other place. And they did. And that's what happened. Totally different business. All right. We've got about five minutes left. Tim, you can, uh, you can ask a second question. Go ahead and unmute. Thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Um, what I saw as a, like an inflection point for WCW was late 99. Bischoff was sent home. They treaded water for a couple of months, brought in Vince uh, Russo and Ferrara, and that didn't go well. What could they have done at that point when they still had a very deep roster of talent? They didn't lose the Radicals. They still had Booker T. They still had Bret Hart, DDP Sting, some older guys who had some things in the tank. It was salvageable at that point. You and Dave said that on your IATA show. What should have happened besides going to Russo and Ferrara that could have at least put them on a trajectory to give us better product before Jamie Kellner, you know, killed the whole thing. I mean, the problem was it was, they didn't have anybody making decisions that knew anything about anything. And, and the thing, too, is like what they needed, obviously, is you need someone competent to come in and book this thing. OK. And, you know, they thought that Russo and Ferrara were competent and they weren't. And, you know, then it's like, oh, what do we do? Well, run with the pad hand. Let's go back to Sullivan or, you know, let's have Nash try it or whatever. They needed somebody competent that wasn't a performer that wasn't going to put themselves, their friends over that was just going to come in and just start over. You've got to start over and you got to have a, like a one-year plan and you got to have the backing of the Turner organization and just go, look, we're going to do this for a year and things are probably still going to go down for a little while, but you know, they're going to eventually trickle back up. You just needed somebody competent that could utilize that talent. And I know this will make people mad, but, Listen, Tony Khan, zero experience in wrestling, nothing, never ran an indie show, never was nothing. Okay. He was a fan and luckily he was a fan with a lot of money and his family had a lot of money and he was able to get this going. Okay. But if Tony Khan had been around in 99 and he was the age he is now, and he'd been a longtime fan and he was just some guy that watched the show and it's not just Tony Khan. It's like there would, have been, there would have been thousands of people that you probably could have pulled in and they could have done a competent job and maybe kept this thing steady and, and tried to build it up a little bit. But 
it was, they weren't going to bring in anybody that had no experience. It was like, well, who has experience doing this or who's been a wrestler or ah, Nash has been a champion. He was a WWF champion or whatever, you know, that's who they went to. And they kept going to the wrong people. They go back to other people. They went back to Russo again, back to Sullivan again. It's just, I mean, the other example I always give is I remember when I was in the nineties, I was watching these tapes. I would get tapes from Japan and there's this little chubby guy ghetto doing these matches, you know, and years later, he ends up booking New Japan. Who was Ghetto? What experience did Ghetto have? He was never like a world champion or, 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 but he was a guy and they were like, who wants to do this? And nobody wanted to do it. And Ghetto said, I'll do it. And he's been one of the great bookers of the last couple of decades. So you just got to find somebody who's competent to, to try to write this train. And they could have saved it after the first Vince Russo run. After the second one, I don't think so. All right, so I think that's going to be it for the time. Let's for... do the one more, whoever, whoever was. Okay, was Parker, 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 go for it. Sure. Um, so um, my sister actually did a project on a failing company for school, and she used your book as the basis <laughs> of her research uh, and chose WCW for that. Um, she outlined a few a few things to like that were like the main reasons they failed. Obviously, making big stars was a big one. Um, you know, corporate egos, like people just, you know, fighting over each other and not really looking out for the company as well as like sort of unrestricted spending. Um, WWE doesn't do really do two of those, but they really seem to have struggled with the making new stars aspect. So I was wondering, knowing that they don't really have a problem with two of those issues, but the making new stars one has been the big one. What's sort of like looking towards the future, a way that people can learn from WCW in terms of, just making a new star because it's easy to say, you know, make a new star. Matt Riddle could be a big star, but like what maybe does that entail in terms of actual like booking and that type of stuff? I would take that last question. We only have a few minutes left. <laughs> well here very quickly. I mean, the one thing I will say, and, and this depresses me when I think about it is Roman Reigns is a heel now. And what I, and, and, and what I mean by that is when John Cena was leaving, they wanted that new John Cena and John Cena was never as big as Hulk Hogan or the rock or Steve Austin, but he was the biggest thing that they had in a whole decade. So John Cena's on a way out and they're like, we got to make a new John Cena. We got to have a new Hogan, Steve Austin, rock, whatever. Got to have this big new top star. They try people who boo him. They try people boo him. Every idea under the sun, they boo him. Guy gets leukemia. He's got to go. Now they don't even have Roman. So what happens? They kind of push Becky and they kind of pushed Drew, but they got nobody approaching a Cena. And guess what? They're making more money than they ever made ever. And Roman Reigns comes back. And now what do they do? Make this guy a heel. Who cares? I think that now, in Vince's mind, he doesn't even need a John Cena. He doesn't even need that one top guy anymore. This machine has been rolling along just fine with no John Cena and no Roman Reigns. So for everybody that's waiting for them, them to create that next big star, it ain't going to happen. They're going to be happy with your top star being Drew McIntyre level on one side, heel Roman Reigns on the other side. Dude, there ain't even a top babyface on SmackDown. We don't even have anybody approaching a top babyface on SmackDown. Otis? <laughs> it's Roman Reigns is the top heel. 
and he's carrying the brand and Drew McIntyre's on the other brand and he's your top baby face and he's at a level of, I don't even know where you'd put him. He's way below a John Cena. He's way below what they wanted Roman Reigns to be. And they're just perfectly fine with that. And I mean, if you're any other company, if you're AEW, you need to make a John Cena, a Hulk Hogan, a Steve Austin. You got to do everything you can to do that because they don't make $2.3 billion on a TV deal. Until they do, they got to try and make somebody like that. But WWE in the position they're in, they're still doing fine enough in 18 to 49. They're making tons of money. They're not going out of business and they don't have to worry about creating some John Cena, The Rock, that's going to go off and make these movies. I almost swore. They make these movies. Eh, whatever. Get all these guys that you can put right under your thumb, make your money, move on with your life till you're 99 like his mom. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Brian, for hanging out with us here. Uh, obviously, everyone knows F4WOnline.com. This will play the week after Thanksgiving. We'll, I'll put this up as, as a podcast. But is there anything you wanted to promote? Uh, I don't know if you guys are doing anything in December or Wrestling Observer Online, your schedule with that. Anything? Well, I know that everybody probably knows about WrestlingObserver.com, so obviously I always plug that. And really the only other thing that I'm trying to push real hard is every single one of you, if you don't mind, video.f4wonline.com. Just hit that subscribe button. It's free. We're just trying to build up the viewership of the of the free channel on YouTube and using that to try and do some conversion. So not even ask you to sign up for the whole thing where you can watch all the shows. Just hit the free subscribe button and we'll that's all I ask. That's my plug for the day. All right. I think we could all do that. I think I've already done that. So I've done my part. But again, thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And it was, uh, you know, it's great to be able to go back and and talk to somebody who, who wrote about the history there. So we appreciate you coming on. And like I said, the next one is going to be Meltzer's 1997 book. So he has a lot to live up to That's based be a on this one. Book club. <laughs> Buckle up, everybody. All right. Thanks, Brian. Hey, thank you, everybody. I really appreciate it.